Hello and welcome to Coast and Country, powered by the science of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Coming up in this special edition, all about beech leaf disease. Robert Mara of the Experiment Station talks about beech leaf collection and his fingerprint system he's created to help identify and track beech leaf disease more specifically. Plus, we take a look under the microscope at the nematodes responsible for beech leaf disease. And Cameron McIntyre from the US Forest Service gives us the bigger picture on beech leaf disease in the US and what the agency is doing to monitor it. But first, I went for a walk in the woods with Robert Mara of the Experiment Station to take a look at the trees affected by beech leaf disease. The disease was first identified in the USA in Ohio back in 2012 and since then has been steadily marching across the nation. And in 2020, beech leaf disease was observed for the first time in Connecticut and already it has spread across the state. Last year it was on eastern Long Island, now this year Westchester, Putnam and much more, uh, more thoroughly in, in eastern Long Island. Um, and whereas, whereas we saw it on a few trees here and there last year, now this year where, where, where we see it, it, it it's much more widespread. Um, so we know that, you know, we, it, it's easier to imagine the nematode getting from leaf to leaf in a tree or leaf to leaf from one tree to a neighboring tree. What we don't really understand is how it actually got here in the first place. We don't know where it came from yet, where this is part of the kind of research that we're doing. Um, but we don't know how it gets from, like how it got from Ohio to here. Um, or did it come here from Ohio? Or did it sort of hop its way? You know, the nematodes themselves need something to move on. So they're probably moving on the bodies of insects. That's one hypothesis. Furry critters like squirrels, um, birds and feathers, possibly through the bird digestive tract, finches overwinter in the forest and feed very, very greedily on beech buds. They actually eat beech buds. And if nematodes are in the beech buds, one, one avenue of research being done in another lab is to study whether or not, uh, whether or not the nematode can survive passage through bird gut. And if finches might be an important part of the transmission, it doesn't have to be one or the other either. It can be one or all of these things. Now, looking at some of the research that you've done so far and the research that's out there, you know, the, the saplings of beech seem to sort of like get um, affected. And I suppose just like most young things, you know, don't seem to be able to withstand beech leaf disease as much. This tree that we're looking at here, obviously a little bit older, a more mature tree. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about things that attack trees, you know, when we talk about gypsy moth, when we talk about ash borer beetle, that seems quite voracious and we see defoliation occur fairly quickly. What's the situation with this? Like this particular tree here, how capable is it, based on your knowledge and research at the moment, is it capable of withstanding, you know, an attack by beech leaf disease? And that's just going to be speculation because we have other factors we have to take in, into account. Um, in many parts of the state, what we saw in the spring did not, rep, did not resemble what was reported in Ohio and Pennsylvania in subsequent years. We only have two years of experience with this, this disease here and only nine years of experience total in the Northeast and only three years based on or two years based on it having been proven that the nematode is the cause. 
Um, it's very, very hard disease to, to do the kind of research that would allow you to prove that the nematode is the cause of the disease. It may not be the only cause, but for right now, we, we, we don't need to say it's the presumptive cause. We know that it is an essential part of this disease. Um, we say that it is necessary and perhaps sufficient, but we don't know the sufficient part yet. Um, so what are we seeing? Well, when we saw trees emerge this spring in certain parts of the state, including like in East Lyme, uh, in a place called the Preserve, in some parts of Fairfield County, not so much here, um, we saw the sort of compounding effects of a very dry March, which is just when buds are starting to swell. And when buds swell, that's the tree calling up its water reserves from its roots. You can't swell a leaf if you don't have water. So the leaves emerged undersized, shrunken, and showing the kinds of symptoms that sometimes were reported in late summer in Ohio. So we really don't know what is the ultimate fate for those saplings. Will they have enough reserves to flush out another set of leaves next spring? We didn't know this about other things that we're even more familiar with, like for example, oaks after multiple years of gypsy moth defoliation in the east. Every year we weren't sure, is this going to be their last year? We don't know until we can observe it, how, how long these saplings can, can undergo this and still have enough reserves, which they probably are getting from their mother tree or their parent tree. I don't like the term mother tree, but... Um, and so we don't know. We have to really, we have to observe and, you know, make, make, um, you know, make enough observations that we can start saying there is some correlation between weather events and the severity of the disease. So Bob, we're back at the laboratory. Uh, you've collected a couple of leaves there. Just talk us through what you do because you were talking about you, you float them to get the nematosis. Just explain to us what you actually do here, obviously under controlled laboratory conditions. Okay. Um, well, one of the reasons why we do this is we want to make sure that the nematodes are there. And we're pretty confirmed and sure now that these nematodes are the causal organism. Um, I'm using genetic markers to study the relationship between different populations, how closely related are Connecticut's populations of the nematode to Ohio's and Pennsylvania's and Maine's, et cetera. And this is something that you've created? I've created a marker system, a fingerprinting marker system, very analogous to the human DNA fingerprinting system. So I had to generate a whole genome sequence, I did that last year, and then use that whole genome sequence of the nematode to find the markers and then basically create a suite of them. We have 19 humans, we use 13. For this nematode, just to be sure, I have 19 different markers that all go into this way of studying relatedness among individuals within the species. And this is to try and see if there's some similarity between a nematode, maybe from Maine, that maybe you find in Connecticut, or... It's going to allow us to test hypotheses about where new infestations come from, and what the pathways of spread are. Um, so we can ask, did Connecticut's nematodes come directly from Ohio? Is Ohio the source population? That's where it was first found. Did Maine's nematodes come from Connecticut via Massachusetts? Same, same question about Long Island's population, Western Pennsylvania. I have leaves from all over the known distribution, even Ontario, and now I can get the nematodes out of here, 
So what we do is when that nematodes, I bring them in from the lab, I mean from the forest, or they are sent to me, is I'll just take a Petri dish and find the, the symptomatic portions. So that would be like right there and there. And then just drop a few of these pieces into the Petri dish like this. And everything else gets autoclaved to make sure that we're not going to be responsible for solving one problem and creating another. So I'll put them in there and then just take plain deionized water, mostly so that it doesn't have chlorine in it because um, I do want these nematodes to remain viable. And then we put them in right side up so that the stomates through which they emerge are on mostly the underside of the leaf. And then we will just let that sit overnight. Um, we have plates here that were set up last night in the same way. And then we will take these over to a stereo microscope and check to see that the nematodes are in there. Once I have nematodes, I then take a tube, remove the leaves, pour all of that water that has nematodes swimming around in it into a tube, freeze them overnight to kill them, thaw them a day later, and then centrifuge them down, and that gives me the nematodes that were coming out of that leaf, extract DNA from them, and then I can genotype them at this marker system that we use, this fingerprinting system. That's the process. And some of the ones that you've got here, just explain to us, you've got from various states. Yep, so here are two, uh, two plates from Massachusetts, that's Plymouth County. I, I said Maine, I have, Maine has already been collected earlier. These are from Ohio. I have plates from Pennsylvania, or leaves from Pennsylvania, nematodes. Now is kind of like make, a, a make hay while the sun shines kind of thing. The leaves now are probably at their zenith in terms of the numbers of nematodes in the leaves. So even though I already have DNA for a lot of these, I want to collect the nematodes now and freeze them because I can't do this in January. The leaves will have already gone and so I want to have nematodes as backups if, if I need to go back and maybe I want to uh, genotype individual nematodes rather than just a collection of nematodes. So as leaves are coming in, I'm basically just isolating as many nematodes as possible, deal with them later. Um, as, we're, as we're now testing our marker system to see how informative it is and how much information that marker system is going to give us to distinguish and discriminate different populations of the nematode. And we can use that marker system also to see how does the population within a tree change from early season to late season. Explain to us what we're seeing here. So this is, these are the nematodes you've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. so here's one of those petri dishes that had leaf pieces floating in it. This one is from Ohio. And, uh, and while you don't get a complete view of how many there are in here, um, because the, the field of view for the camera is limited relative to the microscope, um, you can see that uh, we're looking at lots and lots, and they're very active. Um, I'll try to get a little bit better focus here. That's about as good as it gets. Um, and the light, I think that's pretty much optimal as far as the light and the background is concerned. 
Um, but you can see they have this tendency to, to wiggle, some quite vigorously, some like this one here, not so much. Um, if you st stared at this one long enough, you'd notice that it was moving ever so slowly. Here's one that's kind of like not quite as vigorous. Um, but we're seeing lots of nematodes here, and all told, a plate where they're this crowded probably has uh, maybe 5,000 or so nematodes in it in the entire petri dish. So in those 30 mils or so of, of water, I can, collect, um, I can collect quite a few nematodes that I need for their nucleic acid, for their DNA. And just to give a sense for people that are watching this, because this makes them look huge, they're not very big at all, are they? They're, the adults are about a no more than 100 micrometers in length. So how can I relate that? Um, so it's not even the width of a human hair? Then. It's not the width of a human hair. Um, maybe just about the width of a human hair, depending on the human. And another thing we saw, I think, in this slide is, is, is a clumping effect as well. We're seeing yeah. you were talking about um, no. sort of like... That, that's a fungal spore, so ignore that. Um, but uh, let's see if I can find that clump. There we go. There it is. There it is. Okay. All right, now it's just a matter of getting it in nice. focus. That's nice, that's nice in focus, yeah. And so that is a huge, tangled mess of beech leaf disease nematode, Lytelanchus crenate subspecies mechanii. And do we know, or do you know why they like cluster like that? Is there any? I've I've heard different ideas from from real nematologists, um, and one is that well they're just crowded and they they fall out of the leaf because I also cut the leaf in a few places, so they have more than stomates. It's kind of a way to encourage their exit into the water, um, and they just tumble out in this mess. Um, I. The nematologists I've spoken to have said it's probably not some sort of aggregate, you know, sort of some sort of biological phenomenon, um, but you know maybe it is. Um, but the, the the thinking is is that it's just that they get so crowded in that limited space that they just end up when they're wriggling, and they don't have any sort of directionality to their wriggling. Um, they just end up getting all messed up with each other. But this is what they look like in the leaf in those electron micrographs where they're, they're in situ, they're in vivo, in their, in their natural environment, and they are all tangled up inside the leaf tissue because there's just no room, no more room for them. What other things cause foliar problems on trees? Insects, fungi, bacteria, phytoplasmas, and some abiotic disorders meaning there's no biological cause, it could be an environmental something. So that kind of misdirected the attention until some very determined researchers from Ontario and the USDA in Ohio figured out a way to inoculate the nematode into the tree, but where would you inoculate it? They tried leaves, that didn't work. They tried buds. They made a slurry of these tiny little things and actually injected them into beech buds and they were able to show that those beech buds emerged into leaves the following year, producing the exact same symptoms, and they isolated, a month or so later, they isolated the nematode from those buds. That confirmed, that's called, that, that's called 
satisfying Koch's postulates, and they use that to say the nematode is at least necessary, if not sufficient, to cause disease. So it should no longer be called the presumed cause of this disease. It is a cause, if not the cause, of this disease that is now so widespread. You will not see this disease producing those very characteristic symptoms that are like un unlike anything else. You will not see that where you don't also eventually see the nematode. And my genetic marker confirms that even upon leaf emergence, even from buds, we're showing, we can prove the genetic signature of the nematode is there, even if we can't see these wriggly little swimmers until early to mid-July. While organizations like the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station carry out their research into beech leaf disease, the bigger picture concerning its spread and monitoring is being carried out by the U.S. Forest Service. I spoke with Cameron McIntyre, a plant pathologist with the U.S. Forest Service, to find out more about what they're doing and began by asking him to tell us about beech leaf disease in the northeast of the U.S. That's a good question. So we've been tracking BLD, uh, as we abbreviate it, um, since about 2012, since it started spreading over from Ohio, Pennsylvania area. Uh, it's been in New York for a couple of years now. And from New York, it's been slowly spreading into uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Those are our primary hotspots at the moment. And then just this last year, we got our first detection in Maine, in the mid-coastal region there. So there are currently three counties in Maine that we now see it. Uh, which is a little bit of a jump from where we would have maybe expected to find it. Uh, currently, we have no detection of it whatsoever in the states of New Hampshire and Vermont. And part of the mystery there is that we have no idea how the disease is being transmitted, spread, what's vectoring it, if anything, at this point. Um, so there's a lot of unanswered questions about how it's jumping around from what seems like some very disjunct locations and counties to finding new discoveries popping up all the time. So it's definitely something of concern that we're keeping an eye on. The disease seems to have taken hold fairly quickly. Has this come as a surprise to the US Forest Service just how quickly the disease is spreading across the Northeast and other outlying states? Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a surprise. One of the things that's novel about this disease is what we know that causes it now, which is this nematode, which isn't it's not unprecedented. There are plenty of nematodes that cause damages to, to crops and, and other trees, but they're quite uncommon. Most of the pathology that we deal with in the region are caused by things like fungi, you know, either infecting the vascular system or also foliar fungi that affect the leaves and cause a lot of damage. You know, these are probably the things that you're most familiar with, like anthracnose. Uh, but a nematode is, is a little more novel and it is it's a living thing, of course. Uh, it often gets compared to a worm, although phylogenetically it's, it's a little bit different from what we consider to be our earthworms. And, and for that reason, we really have to approach this pest differently than we do some of our more traditional pathology. And I think a lot of us are, are brushing up on our nematology over the past couple of years to try and tackle and, and address this issue. Can you talk to us about any monitoring efforts that are being undertaken with regards to beech leaf disease? Within the state and private uh, forest health division of the Forest Service, that is our primary objective right now is survey and monitoring. 
you know, the, the only way to, to get a handle on the disease is to know where it is and how fast it's spreading and then what that damage looks like over time. And so for that reason, we've been uh, piloting this network of monitoring plots. This started in Ohio and we've been using and adapting the same protocol throughout the New England states for the sake of being consistent and being able to compare our data uh, across this, this wide regional network. And so the purpose of the monitoring plots is really twofold. One is to you know, establish the set location and track individual trees over time. In some cases, we're setting these up in asymptomatic areas. So these are areas where we haven't observed the disease happening yet because it's important to have that baseline data. And then in other cases, we're putting them in areas that are already infected. These might be initial infections from a current year, like a first year infection, like very subtle. Sometimes we can just find trees that have a couple leaves that show some of those banded and crinkling symptoms that I'm sure you're familiar with in Connecticut. And we track those over time to see how the symptomology of these individual trees progresses from year to year. And that allows us to really get a handle on essentially how damaging this agent can be to a tree and how quickly the health of the tree starts to decline. So whether or not this is, for example, a disease that affects the crown of the tree from the top down or the bottom up and how fast we actually see things like dieback occurring and reduced live crown ratios and things like that, things that are really important for tree vigor and ultimately tree survival. And so one of the things that's most important is mortality, right? And so we track what trees die, what trees survive, all sorts of attributes related to that. Things like tree size tend to be important. General rule of thumb is the larger the tree, the more open grown, the more light and resources it has access to. It should be more resilient to things like pests and pathogens. So that's one objective of the monitoring plots. And the other objective is to make some, some really large scale, regional scale comparisons to look at site factors to try to elucidate things that may or may not be facilitating the spread and severity of this disease. And so by having a standardized protocol that we can use across a large network, that allows us to extract certain variables, certain data points that can be used to essentially plot out where is the nematode bad where is the defoliation? Where is the dieback the most severe? And what sort of site factors are correlated with that? So for example, we may be finding things like your latitudinal position or your elevation or your aspect, you know, essential site factors like that could be important. Um, in addition to that, like also stand structural components. So the composition of the stand um, that can include things like age. Is it a young stand? Is it an old stand? Is it a mixed stand? Does it have multiple cohorts of trees or does it seem to be a forest where all the trees may be established all at the same time after one um, stand replacing event? Um, and then another structural component that we're really interested in is the, is the species composition. So we're working in a pure beach stand, which is pretty common in a lot of areas of New England. Beach is known to be a, a clonal species, so it can put out what we call um, sucker sprouts that are essentially genetically identical to a mother tree where they come from. Because if you have less genetic variability, you're gonna have, um, you're gonna be 
not as well equipped to have the potential to deal with a new pest. Um, and part of the issue with this pest, of course, is that it's invasive. But once you introduce it to North America, where it evolved without this nematode, um, then we start seeing um, really detrimental health issues. And this is a story that's played out, you know, thousands of times with other invasives over the last century. Um, so those are sort of the structural issues that we're interested in looking at. Um, you know, if, if you're in a stand that is maybe only composed 10% beech and mixed with other hardwoods, or it's not uncommon to find it with conifers like, like pine, is there more resilience there? Um, just because you have a different uh, mixture of tree species that can be a buffering component and it can even change uh, microsite conditions that may be more or less favorable to, to the spread and development of this disease. Private individuals also have beech trees on their property and will no doubt be concerned about what they can do to protect them. How can they help and what information is out there for them? Yeah, that, that's a great point. I, I mean, I will say, Brian, that 100% of my job is devoted to working with state and private cooperators. You know, here in New England, we have very little federal land. We have the green and the White Mountain National Forest. But other than that, it's it's really um, a hodgepodge of, of landowners that, that make up the forests in this region, in addition to, to state land as well. And at this point, we don't have any specific recommendations. So we're not asking folks to remove trees that are infected or anything like that. Um, for all we know, that could, that could cause more harm than good. Uh, right now, what we're asking folks for is just help with um, informing us where they think they're seeing it. And so they don't have to perform the diagnostics themselves. We have um, state cooperators, there are diagnostic and national labs that we can use if folks want to send samples in. Um, one of the most important things we need right now though are survey points. And so there is a smartphone application that folks can use. It's called the Tree Health Survey, which I think if you just plug that into your phone's app store, it'll come up. And so that was actually something that was developed by some folks at Cleveland Metro Parks, which is uh, the entity over in Ohio that, that first discovered this in North America. And so they've made this great app, it's pretty intuitive, and it allows you to uh, take photos of the damage you're seeing. It'll automatically enter things like your, your latitude, longitude, so we have an, a nice geographic location for where you found it. Um, that allows people to follow up potentially if, if we wanna confirm it. Um, and that's just really useful for us to do some baseline um, survey gathering information. And then, that, for example, those photos will get sent to some experts who are used to looking at this kind of damage, uh, because there are things out there that look very similar to uh, the, the damage caused by the nematode. I mean, there, there's no shortage of problems with, with beach in the region. You know, there, there are aphids, there are mites, and then, of course, we have uh, beach bark disease, which has been in, in the region for a better part of a century now. And so there are lots of things that you can confuse it with. Um, and so that's why we're, we're really trying to push some, some of our information. The Forest Service has a pest alert. I know the Connecticut Ag Station and Bob Mara have put out some, some great work describing what to look for. Um, and so if folks are equipped with that, hopefully they can, you know, use the app and be well informed. And, and of course, they can always contact uh, their state forest health experts as well. You can find a fact sheet about beech leaf disease by visiting the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station's website at ct.gov forward slash CAES and search for beech leaf disease. 
And if you have beech trees on your property and have detected the signs and symptoms of the disease in them, then contact a local arborist to see what treatment may be available. That's all from this edition of Coast and Country. Thank you for watching. We'll see you again soon.